Find 2 Chronicles 7.14 in your copy of the scripture. If you are using the PURAC Bible, you will find it on page 364. If you're not, you'll have to find your own page. God's promise to his people. God's promise to his people. 2 Chronicles 7.14. But uh, folks, we're going to back up actually to the beginning of the chapter. And I'm going to read down through verse 3. And then we will skip over to verse 11. Okay? God's promise to his people. And as you hear these words, I I want you to just think in your minds uh, about three things. The participants, the process, and the promise. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 11, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Let's pray together. Lord, you tell us to pray for our leaders so that decisions will be made to keep avenues open for the spread of the gospel. Lord, we've seen in history where nations that were once open to the gospel are now led by men and women who are hostile to the gospel. And the church in those places suffers greatly. Lord, we know that something of that nature could one day happen here. But we ask that you would guard us from that while there's still time. Lord, we pray for our leaders. Almost no one understands the pressures and burdens that they face on a daily basis. I'm sure many of them are exhausted. Lord, give them strength. Give them stamina. We pray that you would surround all of our leaders with men and women who will counsel them 
in ways that are pleasing to you. Lord, in the book of Proverbs, you tell us that your wisdom cries aloud in the streets for any who are willing to listen. We pray that they will listen, that they will govern this nation according to your dictates and decrees. Lord, we're such a divided nation, and we know that's not your will, because you tell us in Hebrews 12 that we are to actively pursue peace with all people, and we're to strive for it with all of our might. The hatred, the gossip, the division, the backbiting that we witness every day by those who govern us at all levels is surely not pleasing to you. Lord, prevail upon them to turn from that and to seek your face. God, we pray that you would revive churches in America. Last week, even a secular news outlet like the Wall Street Journal reported on the radical and the shocking decline in recent times of those who attend church. The article talked about the implication that would have on our nation in many ways. Lord, we desperately need heart change. We need revival. We have forgotten you as a nation and as a people. And as Deuteronomy tells us, if a nation forgets you, you will bring swift judgment upon that land. God, we've taken credit for the good and we've blamed others for the bad. We've turned from your precepts and your principles. Lord, we, we will not, we cannot prosper this way. We need your Holy Spirit to do among our citizens what we are helpless to do on our own. God, we pray for our homes, for our marriages, our families, our churches, that we would conduct ourselves in such a way God, that we would encounter you and that we would adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your word tells us that one day the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of your son, the Lord Jesus. Prepare our hearts for that to happen. It might even be today. Prepare our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we read a text like this text in 2 Chronicles 7, and we wonder, quite frankly, we wonder what God could do across an entire nation if that nation were to come to Him in repentance and faith. I want to be clear about something. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is addressed to the nation of Israel at a very specific time in her history. America is not a theocracy where God is celebrated as the king of the land with an earthly king as his representative. I've heard too many sermons on this particular text that seem to lift it totally out of its context and preach it as though America is in mind. 
That's eisegesis. That's not exegesis. That's not letting the text speak for itself. But folks, with that said, does that mean that this text has absolutely no word to say to us today? Obviously not. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so these principles are still His inspired word and they apply to us today. One other word of introduction. When you hear the promise in this passage, if all the promise means for you is that if God were to heal America and bless America, you would simply have more of your stuff to enjoy than you have completely missed the point of this text. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, the reason that Christians ought to be praying for their nation and for their leaders is so that decisions will be made to keep doors open for the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. And that's why we pray these verses for our nation so leaders will make decisions so that the church can prosper, so that missionary efforts of the church can prosper. So that ought to be our motive as we read this chapter and think about it in our own lives. Listen to the words of Benjamin Franklin. As far as we know, he never came to Christ in what evangelical Christians would explain as a conversion. But listen to what he said 232 years ago at the Constitution Convention on June 28, 1787. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our partial local interest and political parties. Our projects will be confounded. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and simply leave it to chance, war, and conquest. He went on to say there in that speech, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and God above and God's blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. 
He sounds like a prophet, doesn't he? And some of what he said. And listen to the words of Abraham Lincoln. He said, it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed who God is the Lord. We see in our text for today that it is God's blessing on the land that brings prosperity. And it's a prosperity that's not necessarily characterized by material blessings. Folks, 2 Chronicles 7.14 promises that God has a remnant of his people and what they do in their lives can make all the difference in the world in a nation. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is the participants. Look again at verse 14. Who does he address here? What's God say? If my people who are called by my name. Now we know that God chose a people for himself. In Genesis 12 we see that God moved on the heart of Abraham. That Abraham would leave his father's country. And he would go to a new land. And God would build a nation out of his descendants. And from that nation would come the Messiah who would bless the world. God brought his people out of the promised land, uh, or, or out of bondage in Egypt rather, placed them in the promised land after over 400 years in captivity. God gave them leaders who were to lead them correctly and according to God's precepts and principles. God, first of all, allowed Saul to be the first king. And Saul was a huge disappointment who turned away from God. And God then raised up King David. David wanted to build a temple for God. But God wouldn't allow it. God ordained that it would be David's son, Solomon, who would be the catalyst behind the building of that temple. And so in the context of this chapter, we see that the temple has just been completed. And as it's completed, Solomon has been caught up in prayer and he's dedicating the temple to God. And I want you to turn back to chapter 6 and listen to some of the pleas that he's making. Look at verse 20. He says there, and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear forgive. Look down at verse 24 of chapter 6. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and, and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. He goes on to talk about if the heavens are shut up because of... Uh, a drought 
And there's a famine in the land. He goes on to talk about pestilence. He talks about war. He talks about sin. And in all these cases, he's pleading with God that God would do a work in the hearts of his people. They would turn to him again in repentance and faith. And when they do, that God would heal the land. So what God is doing in chapter 7 is responding to Solomon's prayer. Now today, who's the temple? We are. We're the temple. And so when we give priority to the new temple in Christ, that's pleasing to God. It's honoring to God when we expend our energies on those things that God is about. God responded to Solomon with both promises and warnings. God promised blessing or cursing on the land in Old Testament times. In the Old Testament, the land factored in in a prominent way. God could bring drought on the land and famine on the land and disease across the land. Or God could bring blessing. God could bring a bountiful harvest. God's disfavor could be seen in things like floods and locusts and droughts. That happened in the days of Elijah. Now folks, as far as today's time, I would be uncomfortable saying that every flood, every drought, every earthquake or every natural disaster we see is... The judgment of God. But I would be just as uncomfortable saying that those things are never the judgment of God. But again, God is instructing Solomon here on the details of all this. God is giving Solomon a prescription for healing and revival in the land and and a fresh encounter that his people can have with him. So what is it that we learn here first? We learn that God's people are the key to the land prospering. Christians today are not recognized as such. But folks, the world needs to see that it's Christians in the land praying that brings God's blessing. Whatever form those blessings might come in. The world persecutes those who are the world's only hope. That's how blind the world is. But oftentimes God's people are in in great need of change. In 1 Peter 4.17 the Bible says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Something has got to change in America today within the church. The church in America is desperately sick. There is a famine of the word in the land. You know in the church it's like we're depending on the world to get right. We say things like, oh, if we can just elect the right people to office as as though we're trusting in politics. Democrats want to 
build up the donkey. Republicans want to build up the elephant. But folks, it's not about a donkey or an elephant. It's about a lamb. And I want to be clearly understood. It could be a wonderful thing if we could keep believers in office. John Jay, I've told you this before. John Jay, the very first Supreme Court Justice appointed by George Washington stated that since, and I quote here, since providence has given to our people the choice of our rulers, it is the duty and privilege and interest of our Christian nation to prefer Christians as our rulers. Could you imagine somebody on the Supreme Court saying that today? There'd be an outcry. My point is, it's like we are depending on the world to to get America right and our politicians to get things right. And folks, if that's you, I've got some strong words for you. You know what you are? You're nothing short of an idolater. Because you're putting some kind of hope in something other than God himself. You're a modern day idolater. If you're looking for a certain person, a certain group, a certain party to be the end all, the answer for everything, you're an idolater. It's Christ that we need. The future of America depends on the church getting right and calling her people back to Christ. We've got to realize that lost people in the world are going to act like lost people in the world. That's what lost people do. And so we've got to carry the gospel to them. Our biggest problem is that we have more of the world in the church than we have of the church in the world I want you to understand it is a great privilege to be a Christian it is an honor uh, to be called a Christian it is wonderful to say I belong to Jesus Christ but not only is it privileged but there's a great responsibility and there is a corporate responsibility that you and I have As citizens, you and I have a corporate responsibility. Secondly, I want you to see the process. The process. Look again at verse 14 here. If my people who are called by my name will take to their social media accounts, that will be the answer. No. What did he say? If they will humble themselves, we're to be a humble people. Now, folks, that ought to be easy, but we find it difficult. It ought to be easy because of man's depravity. Let's think a moment about what the Bible says about man and how that ties in with humility. On the one hand, man is lifted up. In in the Bible, the psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of him? We learn from the very beginning pages of the Bible that man is created in the image of God. 
The theologian Wayne Gruden says that that points to man's intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion over creation, creative capabilities, the ability to make ethical choices, and immortality. The Hebrew words for image and likeness refer to something similar but not identical to the thing that it represents. And so the words made in the image of God mean that we represent God. And so being made in the image of God creates a great deal of, a great deal of favor when we think of a man. Man and all of creation enjoys a very elevated status. Now we know when the fall of man happened in Genesis chapter 3, the image of God was marred, but it was not erased. It was marred, but it was not erased. For that reason, God said to Noah, when Noah stepped off the ark after the flood, uh, God said, "You shed a, a man. if somebody sheds a man's blood, by a man's hand shall his blood be shed. And he gives the reason. He says, for man is made in the image of God. And that's after the fall. And then in the book of James, that passage on the tongue... James says it's not right what we do. On the one hand, we bless God. And then on the other hand, we turn around and we curse man who's made in the image of God. So the image of God remains in man. It's not been erased. And so man's got an elevated position. But on the other hand... The Bible is very honest about what happened after the fall. We're depraved. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We need to understand what our position is, the severity of it. Sometimes people have a very shallow view of redemption. They, they look at redemption as sort of like taking your child for a well visit. The doctor looks at your child and you get, a, you get a report. The doctor says, there are a few things you could tweak. You know, I, I see evidence that your child could use a little more vitamin C or a little more vitamin D. But otherwise, your child's pretty good, just needs a little help. And, and people sometimes view salvation that way. But folks, the Bible says we're not, we're not sick in trespasses and sins. We're dead. In trespasses and sins. A well visit to the doctor is not the biblical image of man. A visit to the cemetery is the biblical view of man. We're dead. And that's why Jesus said even to a religious leader, a good man in the land, good by man's standards. He said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again. Born of the Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. We need spiritual life from above. And only God can do that. So what am I saying? I'm saying if there is any boasting in man, it is only that we boast in the cross. Because on our own we have nothing to boast about. And that's why we should be humble. Humility ought to be easy for a child of God. We are nothing without Christ. You know, the, the reason why the church hadn't seen revival in America, I think, a big reason is we haven't gotten low enough. 
Everywhere around us we see an arrogance and an unhealthy pride in the land. We even think today we know, we know about marriage better than God does. Who do we think we are? Do you know in 2004, even state-sponsored efforts that were put forth to affirm the biblical view of marriage, not one single one of those state-sponsored initiatives failed. The state-sponsored initiatives to affirm biblical marriage, not one failed. 2012, just eight years later, not one single state-sponsored effort to affirm the biblical view of marriage passed. Not one. In eight years, in eight years, a massive turn. Who do we think we are? The church... The church itself even has too much pride. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. We need to be a humble people, not only a humble people, but he moves on secondly about this process to say that we need to be a praying people. One writer says of this, when most people pray for change in their country and for a revival, they are probably asking for a wonderful experience at church next Sunday morning at 11 a.m. But revival is more than a Sunday morning experience. He writes, when you pray for a revival, you're asking God for life-shaking experiences that will cost you plenty. It's agonizing because in revival, you become terrified over your sin and you repent deeply it's consuming because in revival you have no time for hobbies for chores around the house for work even for sleep revival crashes your daytimer it interrupts TV times demands your full attention and wears you out usually when we pray for revival we're telling God sick them on the bad guys little do we realize that revival begins with us the people of God is that how you pray? God at all cost revive me Whatever it takes, revive me. You willing to pray something like that? Leonard Ravenhill once said, The church is dying on her feet because she's not living on her knees. What strongholds are in your life? What struggles do you have that need to be soaked in prayer? And are you praying not simply for God to make your day a little bit better, but for God to do a radical work in your heart where you're never the same again?
Thirdly about the process here, he points out we need to be a seeking people. Seek my face, he says. There's something profoundly active about that. Too many are saved and satisfied. There's stagnation. Maybe they're living off of yesterday's experiences and quite satisfied to do so. But seeking communicates something altogether different. The man on his face before God crying out because if God does not move in his life and manifest something in his life and change his life, then there's no hope for him. That's the picture of seeking. God says when we seek Him with all of our heart, we will find Him. Could you imagine what would happen today all across America? All of those who profess Christ, if, if we were on our faces before God, seeking Him with all of our hearts, saying, God, whatever it takes. Could you imagine what might could happen? Fourthly, about this process, he says we're to be a repentant people. A repentant people. Any thoughts, any motives, any words, any actions, any apathy, one and all, they are to be put before God. And if God is not pleased with some aspect of your life, you cast it aside. You love God more than you love sin. That's repentance. You see, folks, prayer without repentance is a waste of time. Remember what David said in in Psalm 66? He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Today, people want purity without penance, cleansing without confession, and revival without repentance. And it's not going to happen. And then lastly, I want you to see the promise. What's he say? If his people will do this, what will he do? What's he say? Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Psalm, uh, not Psalm, Isaiah 59 points out that sin keeps him from hearing. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But with sin out of the way and repented of and cleansed, he says here, he would forgive and heal. Our nation is in need of healing, folks. We are divided about everything, it seems. Even folks today in churches are divided about everything. Nobody can say or do anything anymore without somebody being offended. Listen, if you're offended about everything, you know what that is? That's pride. Because somehow or another you think you're the standard. Christ is the standard. We ought to be offended by what offends Christ. We ought to be worried about what offends Christ. Not what offends me or what offends you. 
We're at a crossroads. We're at a crisis of belief in America. We now call evil good and good evil. We value that which cannot save. Woodrow Wilson, in his closing words to America, said, Our civilization cannot survive materially unless we are redeemed spiritually. You say, can't happen. Sure it can. I want to read something to you in closing. Forgive the length of it. It's about the great Welch revival. And how the Welch revival jumped the Atlantic and came to America. What I I want you to see in this is what can happen when God gets a hold of a people. This is the account of that revival and a man by the name of Evan Roberts. A young man felt impressed by God that revival was coming to his native Wales. He told a friend, I have a vision of all Wales being lifted up in heaven. We're going to see the mightiest revival that Wales has ever known. And the Holy Spirit is coming soon, so we must get ready. He claimed God would give him 100,000 souls if he would organize a preaching band to travel across the nation during the coming revival. The student gathered together several friends who agreed to be part of his team but the revival itself began in a meeting conducted by a young evangelist alone during a meeting on October the 30th 1904 Evan Roberts was impressed to return home for a week of ministry among the youth in his home church the next day he boarded a train uh, for Lawar That evening, he conducted his first meeting after the regular prayer meeting. He told the 17 people gathered of his vision and urged them to declare their faith in Christ publicly. Although the initial response was slow, eventually all present gave their testimony. Throughout the week, Roberts conducted meetings each evening calling the youth to deal with sin, renew their obedience to God, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and publicly declare their faith in Christ. Meetings typically ran three to five hours. Within a week, the youth meetings had begun to attract parents impressed with the changes that they saw in their children and the Mariah Chapel was filled to capacity. On November the 9th, the English language newspaper in Cardiff announced... A remarkable religious revival is now taking place. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts has been causing great surprise at Moriah Chapel. The place has been besieged by dense crowds of people unable to obtain admission. Such excitement has prevailed that the road on which the chapel is situated has been lined with people from end to end. His statements have had the most stirring effects upon his listeners. Many who have disbelieved Christianity for years are turning, returning to the fold of their younger days. One night, so great was the enthusiasm invoked by the young revivalist that after his sermon, which lasted two hours, the vast congregation remained praying and singing until 2.30 in the morning. Shopkeepers are closing early in order to, to get a place in the chapel and tin and steel workers 
thronged the place in working clothes. Although Roberts became the acknowledged leader of the Welch revival, the revival itself extended far beyond his own ministry. Churches were filled for two years across the entire nation. As Roberts had predicted, a hundred thousand converts were added to the church. The use of alcohol in wells dropped by 50%, resulting in the bankruptcy of taverns. Crime was reduced to the point that judges in many jurisdictions were presented with white gloves indicating there were no crimes to be tried that day. In various communities, police became unemployed when they were no longer needed. In coal mines, mules refused to respond to converted miners who began treating the animals with respect and stopped using foul language at them. When news of the Welch revival reached America, there was a similar response. Ministers gathered in various conventions to prepare for coming awakening. In Philadelphia, Methodists soon reported having over 6,100 new converts. The pastors of Atlantic City churches claimed there were only 50 unconverted adults that they could think of in the entire city on a single city in New York a single Sunday in New York City 364 were received in the membership and 286 converted to Christ the revival also swept through the south First Baptist Church in Paducah Kentucky added a thousand people within a couple of months across the Southern Baptist Convention baptisms increased by 25% in a single year In the Midwest, Methodists reported the greatest revivals in their history. Every store and factory in Burlington, Iowa closed to allow employees to attend prayer meetings. When the mayor of Denver declared a day of prayer in that city, churches were filled by 10 o'clock at 11.30. Virtually every place of business in the city closed as 12,000 gathered for prayer meetings in downtown theaters and halls. Every school in town and the Colorado State Legislature closed for the day. In the West, United Meetings attracted 180,000 people in attendance. By midnight, the Grand Opera House in Los Angeles was filled with drunks and prostitutes seeking salvation. In Portland, Oregon, the entire city virtually shut down between 11 a.m. and 2.30 p.m daily for noon hour prayer meetings could you imagine something like that happening today can it happen if my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin. And heal their land.